the incomparable. Number 481, October 2019. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and this episode is the latest in actually kind of a series of episodes where we go back in time to talk about a film that is beloved by a lot of people who grew up in the, in this case, in the early 80s. It's 1982's The Dark Crystal, which has recently, there was a prequel series on Netflix. Um, we're not gonna talk about that, except maybe obliquely, but um, I haven't seen it and we're not gonna really talk about it, so don't worry. We're gonna talk about the 1982 film with lots of puppets directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. And uh, this is also the latest in the series of podcast episodes where, although I grew up in the early 80s and am well aware of what the Dark Crystal is, uh, until about 12 hours ago, I hadn't seen it. So this will be interesting. Uh, let me introduce the people who presumably have seen The Dark Crystal more recently than the 21st century. Anthony Johnston is here. Hello. Mm, I am indeed here. <laughs> Good. And yes, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, but we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, we pro I hope so. Uh, Kelly Gamont is also here. Hello. Hi. Uh, I have seen it more recently and probably more often. I don't want to name check, but I did get an opportunity to meet Agra and Jen and Kira in person at the uh, Seattle Pop Culture Museum when they had the Jim Henson exhibit. Did you meet the puppets oh. or the people? The puppets. <laughs> you met the puppets. The puppets are people, Jason. The yes. Mm. The They're real. Mm. Like, yeah. And a mystic. How dare you? By mm. the way. Yes. Moises Chuyan is also here. Hello. Mm, trial by stone. Mm. <laughs> there, I have some thoughts of the... Uh, the links between the Empire Strikes Back and the Dark Crystal, but uh, we'll, 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 there's some there's some Yoda esque uh, stuff going on here. And Shannon Sutterth is also here. Hello, hola frikis. Indeed, indeed. Um, and hola, hola to you from uh, this shard of the Dark Crystal. All right, so the Dark Crystal, it's a uh, it's puppets. I. Uh, I I want to hear what people think about it and why they love it. And if you love it, if love it, you do. If you're here to hate it, you're very mean. But okay, I guess I'll I'll listen to it. Um, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to before we get started, just give you some overall thoughts as somebody who had never seen it before. Even though I remember it existing, I just never saw it. And I I and more of this will come out as we go. But just to say, I think among the things that are fascinating about this are the fact that it's in, that it's entirely puppets as opposed to something like Labyrinth, which we did an episode about, mm -hmm. which is Erica Ensign's beloved 80s movie, which has puppets and humans in it. And I noticed at several points in The Dark Crystal where I, I, I found it interesting where you could have very easily had some of these characters, especially the Gelflings, be humans if you wanted to. And I could see how that would work. And the choice was made to made, make this entirely... A, it's an all puppet production is what I'm saying. And boy, I enjoyed saying that phrase. Uh, so I think that's interesting. I mentioned Star Wars. I, I, as I watched it, I was just, I spent some time thinking about the storytelling sensibilities of this movie and of the Muppets and of Jim Henson in general as and, and how that connects to sort of the storytelling sensibility of the original Star Wars trilogy, which integrated puppets into what it did. I think there's something interesting going on there. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, I, I think I'll leave it there for now, but uh, I thought, I think this is a really interesting film, um, that I kind of wish I had seen when I was 11, but I didn't, I saw it 
now. Um, but I, it, it is a fascinating look into this corner of, uh, of Jim Henson's back catalog as well that people don't know like they know the Muppets uh, the, you know, and the Muppet Show. I, I will also say, uh, for those who don't know, in the first year of Saturday Night Live, they had a, uh, a Muppet-related series of sketches uh, featuring, it was called The Land of Gorch, and it featured a bunch of uh, strange creatures, including, uh, I think my favorite being Scred, uh, who at one point had to do a Chevy Chase bit and say, I'm Scred and you're not. Uh, and the writers hated it and everybody agreed it was a bad idea. And Jim Henson went off and did the Muppet show instead to show that he wasn't just like a kid's puppeteer, but he had more broad uh, comedy for broader audiences in him. Um, and I was thinking about them because if you look at some of those Land of Gorge characters, they're, they're very similar to the stuff that ended up in the Dark Crystal. It was sort of that's where that part of his brain ended up going later on. So with that all said from the person who hadn't seen the movie before yesterday um i I, we might as well start with everybody's kind of personal feelings about this movie their history with it and and um and why they are so attracted to it and i think we have to start with anthony because he's already revealed that this is uh one of his favorites it is yeah i mean i was 10 years old when this movie came out and i saw it by myself in the theater uh and i just from the very first moment i was mesmerized um uh, and became sort of slightly obsessed with it after leaving, um, you know, when it was over. Uh, you mentioned about it, yeah, the, it's all puppets. Not only that, it's all, I mean, the Gelfling are close, obviously, but they're not actually humans. This is the first, uh, it was billed as the first live action film with no human characters, which I thought was an interesting sort of way to, to frame it. Uh, <laughs> and apparently, according to Wikipedia, which as we all know is never wrong, remains <laughs> one of the highest grossing puppet movies of all time, despite the fact that it actually had, you know, kind of commercial difficulties when it came out, because it's dark, clues in the title. And that's what I loved about it as a kid. I mean, you know, I was nine years old when Empire Strikes Back came out, and I loved that as well. Um, Go figure, that's just me and my sensibilities. But that's one of the things that I've always loved about this movie, and why I keep coming back to it. Like, I have like many other people i'm sure on this panel i have owned every home video media of this movie over the years i keep rebuying it you know they keep getting their money's worth out of me um <laughs> and i rewatch it every few years because i just love it so much i'm convinced that sony pictures is still afloat because we keep rebuying Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal on every home media format <laughs> yeah, they well, release. My, my sister kept Labyrinth going. For, yeah, God, that was that was her childhood movie. You know that you know, every kid has a movie that they watch, uh, like just every single day. Labyrinth was that for my sister. That wasn't an option for me when this came about, but it would have been. You know, if home v- media had been around when I was nine. 10 years old, I would have watched this just continually. Yeah, because uh, I love it. And like I say, partly that's because of, you know, we'll get into this later. I don't want to uh, say everything now, but it is mainly because it is, it treats, even though it is obviously aimed at kids, it treats the kids with a level of emotional intelligence that a lot of fantasy film aimed at kids don't. And I really like that. Kelly, what's your past experience with this movie? Well, I always had a special place in my heart for this because Muppets, um, Mm. I love all things Muppet and Muppet adjacent. Uh, that's kind of my jam. So uh, for me, what 
what I really loved about this is uh, I was slightly younger than Anthony when this first came out and we went and saw it because I basically said, jumped up and down and said, Muppets, mom, Muppets, mom, mom, <laughs> Muppets, until we went and saw it. And then um, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. I was like eight. So, I mean, there was a whole lot I hadn't seen before, but going to a completely different place and having it be all like like Anthony was saying all all puppets and you know there were no people anywhere and it was just this whole thing because I you know with the Muppet show like there were always a few people a person or two here and there and so having it be this whole other place that was all puppets and a whole other society and a whole other way of life and everything like right down to the ground like not one thing in that movie was familiar to me and so watching it was fascinating and so part of me always kind of remembers it for that like this is like nothing I have ever seen before and hadn't really had a lot of exposure to sort of fantasy stories at that point even really and so it was um it was just a completely sort of mind expanding experience like this is I didn't realize that was a thing that you could do and finding that out was uh was really exciting and then getting to watch it more uh once uh renting movies was something that that you could do uh, I did rent it very much Moises what's your personal history with The Dark Crystal This is one that I I I was I was exposed to at uh like a, a family friend's house or something uh in in that way that when something is on tape uh sometimes you're you know wandering from one room of somebody's house to another and you know families are you know hanging out and kids are playing and whatever and I just came across this incredibly terrifying bird thing with teeth uh screaming at something mm. um and <laughs> it was terrifying <laughs> it was terrifying um i loved i loved muppets i loved uh muppet babies i loved every flavor of muppets that could be delivered to me um and even this, scary bird monster muppets well this this was the exception i i realized uh <laughs> when when i found out later that this was also a hensony type of a thing and so i was kind of like well whatever this is I'm good. I'm going to go back into the other room and play with Care Bears. Um, mm. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I came back to it uh, a few years later when the movie uh, was playing on cable. It was Encore. I don't know. With some some movie channel or another. Um, and similarly, I just came across it in the midst of um, a, a scene that happens later in the film with Kira strapped into a chair. Also terrifying. Oh, no. um, I was a little <laughs> bit older. Um, and and so so the, the repeated re-traumatizations of this movie are something that I had to overcome. And once I did, um, because I, I found uh, I found OK, I, I found myself watching it for a little bit after that point. I was like, well, this is OK. This is this is scary, but scary in the enjoyable way, in the entertaining way. Uh, OK, I'll. I, I'm gonna look at I'm gonna look at the uh, the 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 sneak preview channel with the with the rolling um, uh, uh, guide of of when what is coming on and and see if it's coming on again and sure enough on on one of the other movie channels it was starting again in about an hour uh, and so I sat down and watched it uh, front to back and enjoyed it quite a bit and uh, and that was that was kind of enough for me I didn't need to own it on tape. Uh, but at the at the advent of DVD, when I was in college, 
when they announced it, I, I went, oh, I very much would like this thing with some supplemental features. I don't even remember if the initial release of it on DVD had extra features on it. But I just thought to myself, oh, well, now that I'm a, I'm a fancy man with a with a PlayStation 2 DVD player, um, you know, I, I and I'm into supplemental features. Now that I'm I'm an adult, I know I know these things about the craft. I want to learn more about this. Um, and, uh, and I have, I have, I have dutifully, I, I pulled down my, my 4k Blu-ray steel book and cracked it open for the first time, uh, because I knew eventually, eventually we would get to this mm. movie. Um, and so I, I saved that first viewing for this. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's something that, um, that while initially terrifying, it, it was, it was something that the level of craft on display, was was undeniable and so when i was at an age that wasn't quite toddlerhood and and could handle it it was it was one of my introductions to the notion that that scary scary can be safe scary and weird can be cool um and uh and it it is uh it is it is a a deep a deep favorite of mine uh that i came to over time and Shannon, how about you? Uh, in my case, I was a sophomore in high school when this came out. So uh, I was of an age where, you know, had already seen Empire Strikes Back, had already gone through the, you know, when is when when does entertainment marketed for families and children get too scary? I was past that. Uh, I was past that point. Um, but my family, the Muppet show was one thing that my sister and I and my parents actually all agreed on, uh, watching together, um, because my sister and I were, you know, all about the Muppets and all about the fun. And my parents wanted to see the guest stars and it all worked. So when the movie came out and, you know, it was like, well, it's, it's Muppets, it's, it's, it's Muppets, mom. And, you know, she had us go to the theater and I think I saw it, I want to say three times in the theater, um, at the time, because it was tripping every single trigger that I had at that time, and quite often still have. It was high fantasy and magic. It was uh, Henson puppetry. Uh, it was a hero's journey. Uh, these were all things that I ate up with a spoon at that age. Um, I got to college and had a roommate that insisted on, at the time, getting HBO and Cinemax and Showtime because she wanted all the movies. And <laughs> The Dark Crystal was playing regularly, and that was one of the movies. We would, we would like, get into this habit of, like, every month or two watching the same movie over and over again. Like, there was a month when it was color purple, and there was a month when it was um, – I forget what some of the others were, but the Dark Crystal hit uh -huh. that rotation. So we like were watching it constantly, uh, and memorizing lines and remembering it. Um, and it, you know, remained one of my favorites. Uh, when the DVD came out, I got the DVD. Um, as I discovered when I was looking for it to rewatch it again the other night, some at point at some point I picked up the Blu-ray and had forgotten. So I've got two copies at the moment, <laughs> and that was fine because I hadn't seen the you know Blu-ray yet, and that made it look a little bit better on the TV. Yeah. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it was kind of interesting. My son had said something about my uh, senior and high school son had said something about, oh, I might want to watch that with you. Um, and unfortunately, he was hanging out with his girlfriend too late last night uh, when I was rewatching and he came in about halfway through. But it was interesting seeing him because he, he wound up sitting down and watching the rest with me. So it was kind of interesting to ha see his reactions on top of that um, and the things he reacted to that I didn't at the time. Well, I think one of the um, interesting things about the sort of creative decisions in the movie is that it is a very 
even though it's got all these strange fancy trappings and everything looks different, as Kelly said, and new and you've never seen anything like it, it is still basically a fairy uh, fairy tale. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you are at all familiar with how fairy tales are constructed, you can come in halfway through and figure out pretty much, mm-hmm. oh, okay, generally I can figure out what's happening and where we're going to go from this. Um, yeah. And it's a very European kind of fairy tale, which is interesting considering it's made by Americans, but was made in the UK with a British production company. So all of these, uh, you know, sort of cultural elements coming together makes it something that I think is kind of universal, even though it wasn't to everybody's taste. <laughs> yeah, it was quite interesting to, you know, because Will would, some things Will would just sort of be nodding at, some of the things that, you know, that have been mentioned that he found, you know, terrifying, certain scenes that he was just like, you know, actually verbally going like, oh my God, what's this is scary. This is so scary. Um, and other times he's like, wait a minute, what? And I'm like, they they did something earlier that you missed to explain this. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so he was very <laughs> accepting of a lot of the things. All right, let's take a little break and let me do our first sponsor. This episode is brought to you in part by ExpressVPN. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. And the idea here is when you click on ExpressVPN on your phone, on your tablet, on your laptop, wherever you are, your entire connection is encrypted. All the data passing between your computer and the internet is completely locked away. Nobody can snoop on it. And when it comes out the other end of that encrypted tunnel, it's somewhere else on a different IP address. So if you're concerned about being tracked by nosy ad companies, if you need to relocate virtually to another country in order to get access to the video service that you paid for back home, even when you're somewhere else, for example, you can use a VPN to do that. There's so many different things it can do, including protecting you, giving you that extra protection. When you're at an open Wi-Fi at a cafe or something like that, you can lock it up so that nobody at any point can check out your data until it gets all the way back to ExpressVPN safe and secure. It runs in the background of your computer or your phone, encrypts your data, hides your public IP address. Just download the app, click to connect. That's it. You're protected. It was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It uses cutting-edge technology called Trusted Server to make sure there are no logs of what you do online. And ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Couldn't be easier. I have it on my iPad. One tap. That's it. And then I am completely encrypted in that secure tunnel all the way back to ExpressVPN. Protect your activity today, your privacy today, and find out how you can get three months free by going to expressvpn.com slash Snell. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Snell for three months free with a one-year package. Take back your online privacy from the snoopers out there. Expressvpn.com slash Snell. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting the incomparable. So I watched this with my wife who has seen it before and Lauren was saying how um, she doesn't remember. She hasn't seen it since she was a kid and she didn't remember the plot. She remembered Mm. the visuals. And I think it's, it's Mm. probably worth starting there. Like this is, this is a movie. I think actually knowing it's an all puppet production, you, for me, I was more impressed because then I'm realizing, because you know, puppets, Doing an all puppet production is hard. You have to build sets and have the ability to puppet 
the puppets to control the puppets in mm-hmm. the sets. You can change the scale if you want, but they all have to be in scale and you have to have the ability to shoot it like a movie, but also perform it like a puppet show, which it is. So I, I kept watching the movie on two levels and I, I realized that as a kid, you probably wouldn't do this um, mm-hmm. until a, a certain point where that light kind of comes on and you're like, oh, they people made this. How did they make this? But for me, as an adult watching it, that was part of it was just like, you know, the ambition of doing something that's entirely puppets is building these sets and having these set pieces. And and so it looks, it is a weird world that is that is set up. There are a lot of very strange, intricate indoor sets in the in the temple, the tower where the where the crystal is, the dark crystal, um, in the in the place where the mystics live. Um, there are a few other sets like that. And then yeah. the other thing I think that that made me really impressed with the filmmaking and the uh, the the level of difficulty chosen by the filmmakers is the use of location shooting because there are a few instances where the puppets are outside and mm-hmm. those blew me away and full body shots which confused oh the God. hell out of me as a kid yeah. see i intellectually i knew it was puppets but like i was watching it remember i was 10 years old and i was going wait wait are these are these things real what's going on yeah my son <laughs> yeah. was immediately like that that's a person in a costume right and i'm just like I, well, I, is it, so. I don't know anything about the making yeah. of this but Maybe? there are some shots where the pup, where the where the uh, the uh, gelflings are scrambling around where i thought well the long shot is somebody in a costume and then they cut mm-hmm. the shorts the, the close-ups are of the puppet right. and i it, it you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of assumed that they used some human doubles in costumes for uh, some of those movements. But the shot I wanted to mention especially is there is a shot of the mystics, I, I believe it is, all in a row on like a like a sand dune or something or the crest of a hill with mm-hmm. this cloudy sky in the background. And it's magic. It's magical because it's one of those moments that... And there are a few in this movie that really hit you because you get inside of the like we're watching the the puppet world and then the puppets are in the real world for a shot or something that is very close to the real world. And all of a sudden they are grounded in a way that, you know, you kind of like can't take for granted that this thing happened. And, And it like took my breath away that shot where the row of the mystics are going along with the cloudy sky in the background. It's like, yeah, and to think that those. Those people, it's like even Henson himself couldn't couldn't maintain the position required to manipulate that that puppet for like more than ten seconds at a time because they were actually like duck walking practically, right? Yeah, with one hand up to manipulate the head. Mm -hmm. Same with the Skeksis as well. The Skeksis Mm -hmm. were full body, full size performers as well. The other fascinating part for me was there's a there's a a a particular. section with Jen where we're seeing the 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 flora of of this world mm-hmm. that itself is being puppeteered and their designs that that draw from sea fans and things that you know live on the bottom of the ocean uh, but they've they've extrapolated into you know being something that that lives above ground and behaving uh, the same way as those you know weird otherworldly things from the seas do uh, and it, it was just uh, it, it I had a similar level of how is this even happening um, <laughs> for not, not just at a young age, but going into adulthood where you just don't see anything like this. And it's a live action movie in the sense that it's shot with cameras and film, 
But what's fascinating is the way that it is also an animated movie in the sense that, uh, with a few exceptions, everything you see is artificial. Everything you see, mm-hmm. just as in an animated movie, you know, you can't you can't cheat. Yeah. In a live action movie, you can shoot it on a street and you didn't have to build the street. But in an animated movie, you have to build everything because you have to create the entire world. Well, this is like that, except also feels like live action because this is film in cameras. And that that, that combination is is uh, no, just that's fascinating. That's so immersive. Yeah. And yeah. Jason, as, as as someone who hasn't seen any of the behind the scenes stuff of this, are you wanting to look at that now or do you want to not look behind the curtain? I mean, I, I I feel like I've seen enough behind the scenes material about about puppeteer things from, you know, I don't know, from Farscape, which is an example. I, I can give you a lot of examples of where live action and, and puppets are combined, but I feel like I've seen enough of it that I, I don't really have any desire. Uh, and, and yes, I would also kind of like to just retain the mystery of it. But I'm reminded um, of something that I learned while while watching some of the behind the scenes stuff for Farscape, which was, again, a Henson production with puppets and humans, is one of the things that they talked about is... Um, to make the puppets real, you have the people touch the puppets, and then they're like, mm-hmm. then they're they're in the same plane, they're in the same existence, and they're and and they're both physical. And I was thinking about that in this because that's one of the challenges of this is that they're all puppets. It's all puppets, um, but you can try to have the you know the puppets interacting with the scenery and interacting with the world and interacting with even I would say the laws of physics in a few places that help ground mm-hmm. them and make them feel like this is real and what you're watching is absolutely real even though part of your brain knows that it it, it can't be well, i think that's what brings me back to it like every time i've come back around to it in some fashion or another it's it's held my interest in a completely different way like i said when i first got to see it in a theater it was nothing i'd ever seen before and then it became a little bit more about the story and picking up a little more of what they were putting down. And then, uh, you know, the, the craftsmanship, like how was that a puppet outside walking around on a hill, you know, and there is a a line for stunts. There's somebody who gets credit for stunts, by the way, in this Mm -hmm. movie, Uh, Kieran Shaw, that people might remember yeah, from that, that'll uh, be other him falling down the hill outside of Orgur's orrery. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and, and then, you know, from there, ju- like the the appreciation of, like you were saying, Jason, everything everything in this movie is, everything I can see is a construct in, of some sort. You know, it was all built in some way. And then down to like, how is Jen crying? You know, like physically how, as a, how did they do that with a puppet? You know, that kind right. of thing. And so that's why I keep, I think that's part of why I keep coming back to it and watching it because every time I, every time I come to it, um, I think I also picked it up on HBO during the the stretch that Shannon was talking about where with all the movies, um, my house had HBO. And so I watched Empire Strikes Back a whole lot and I watched The Dark Crystal a whole really lot. And so, uh, yeah, meet Kelly <laughs> based on, uh, because I had HBO in my formative years. And so here we are. Uh, but that was that for me, like every time I come back and watch it, there's some new thing about it that is unbelievably interesting and makes it very easy mm-hmm to you know not just the sentimental piece but whatever new layer of appreciation i can bring to it yeah when I, and i had the same same experience because it's it had been several years since i've watched it uh for the podcast and i my memories had this very strict dichotomy between the sort of desert uh beige color schemes of the mystics 
and the greenery and the uh, forests uh, that Jen and Kira travel through where uh, the podlings live. And then the Skeksis, my my mental impression was just everything was dark. They were all dressed in black. Uh, they, you know, I remembered sort of the vulture um, carrion bird design of them. And watching it this yes. time around, I'm like, wait a minute, there's a lot of color here. I didn't remember them dressed in the rich robes. I, the materialistic aspect of that mm-hmm. half of mm. the divided species. Uh, I had not remembered that. So here I am just sort of watching and appreciating all over um, the um, different facets I was seeing uh, for them. One of the metaphors I really like in this movie, uh, as part of the sort of storytelling craft of it, is that you know, Chamberlain's punishment is being stripped of his vestments right. and all the finery and revealing that underneath all the pomp and circumstance, he's weak and mal- malnourished. And obviously, you know, you think, well, they must all be like that. And that's the first time that you mm-hmm. see that and you realise that. It's very on the nose, but this is a children's movie, let's not forget. So, you know, it works. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the other thing that that does is... And it took me, obviously, I was a lot older when I sort of realised it and thought about it in this way, but the Chamberlain undergoes a sort of hero's journey of his own. Like every traditional hero's journey is the hero is stripped of all their worldly possessions, forced to go on a dark journey, they gain wisdom, they battle through, and then they come and use that wisdom to save the day. That's what the Chamberlain does. That's Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jen does that as well, sure, but it's also what the Chamberlain does. And it's one of the reasons, I think, that this story works so well, because you have those parallel stories going on at the same time, even for the villain. And it makes the Skeksis, they are vile, they are horrible and disgusting and laughable, but the, the Chamberlain of all of them is actually quite sympathetic. And you do start to feel sorry for him in certain places until, of course, he reveals himself to be horrible and cruel and evil after all. But mm. I think that's just an example of, you know, there is an intelligent storytelling going on here. It's not just, you know, fantasy bunkum for the kids. There's this fantastic Gollum kind of dynamic with him where you don't know whether to trust him. And mm-hmm. even upon rewatching this movie, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, but but I find myself I, like the that's one of the most engaging parts of it is is the Chamberlain's uh, arc is I find myself wrapped up in it each time. Uh, and it's it's almost like seeing it again for the first time. All right, let's take another brief break. And let me tell you about our other sponsor this week. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom. While you've been listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down because your computers had betrayed you? Would you know if your customers couldn't click the buy now button or access your content? You might stumble across it by luck. That's not good enough. You need a system. You need something to tell you that everything is running smoothly on your site. And more importantly, when it's not because your computers have betrayed you. You need Pingdom. Pingdom lets you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you. And they're smart. They will get the information needed to solve the issue sent to whoever needs it, whether that's one person or your whole team. And they're dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable. They have more than 70 different global test servers to emulate visits to your site. And those servers are computers, but that's why they have 70 of them. So if one of them fails, not only will they know right away because they're Pingdom, but they have 69 other ones that are still checking. As often as every minute. All Pingdom needs is your URL. That's it. They take care of the rest. Don't risk being the last to know about something on your site breaking. Those are the worst emails to get. Start monitoring your site today and be the first to know. Go to pingdom.com slash Snell right now for a 14-day free trial. No credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code Snell at checkout and you'll get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of The Incomparable. 
So we're talking about the storytelling because we have been talking a lot about the technical aspects of this, which I, I'm fascinated by because this movie is unlike almost any other movie I've seen. Um, the storytelling, I think, is fascinating. Anthony, you mentioned especially the, uh, the, the parallels of the story that are going on here. On one level, this is a very straightforward story where there is a young person who is maybe the last of his kind, maybe not. They're, they never are, are they? And, uh, <laughs> but there is a prophecy, you know, I got, you know, part of me wants to roll my eyes at that. And another part of me is like, of course there is. Uh, there's a prophecy <laughs> that this is going to be in this one moment, the three suns around this planet are going to converge. You know, they're going to all be lined up. And in that moment, this shard of a crystal could be put back in the crystal, which in a catastrophe that happened long before created these awful uh, skexies that are that are uh, that rule, although they are a they are a uh, civilization in horrible decline. There are only 10 of them left at the beginning and they're dying and it will be inevitable that that they will they will die out, but they will take the rest of the life in this world with them. Um, and so, you know, it, it is. And, and then the one ha- uh, sorry, Gelfling who is doing this uh, quest obviously is going to be the hero who has the hero's journey and learns some things along the way and meets up with some companions including a cute animal i mean on one level it is as straightforward a fantasy story as you can get and it's i think well executed but it is completely i would say out of the like it doesn't on that level diverge at all, I'd say, from your standard kind of fantasy story. What I find fascinating is there is this other level that is super weird and is all about making parallels. And the thing that it starts and ends with, really, is the fact that the Skeksis, who are awful... And the mystics who are good and, and the mystics raised Jen and the, the, the mystics uh, wise man dies at the beginning or he's like, which in that funny scene where he's sort of like, well, I'm, I, you know, maybe in the next life I'll see you. But in this one, I'm not going to because I'm going to die now. Goodbye. Um, but they are the same. <laughs> you laugh, the, but that's a great line. We may meet in another life, but not again in this one. It's, it is good. But then, I just I good. think it's kind of funny because, you know, then he just sort of like goes down to sleep. But then but but what's happening is and is revealed in that moment is this is a direct parallel that when the, the Skeksis and the mystics are sides of the same thing, because when one of them dies, the other one dies. And when the wise man dies, the emperor dies. And and there's that moment yep. of like. He's like, no, I am the emperor. I, I am still in charge. And then he stops and everybody's like, is he dead? And then he crumbles into dust and they're like, okay, yeah, he's dead now. Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> I guess great. so. <laughs> but, but, and then later when another um, Skeksis dies, a uh, another mystic just sort of like explodes, just vanishes. Or yeah. dissolves mm-hmm. or whatever out of existence. Yeah, an optical effect drops in and, and, and that mystic just yeah. disappears. Th- so that's fascinating because that's a whole other weird layer on top of the fairly i'd say straightforward and i'm not saying it in a bad way but like fairly straightforward fantasy story but the idea that the monsters are and the and the gentle folk are exactly the same they are two sides of the same coin i think mm-hmm. that is uh i think that's pretty cool again for a children's fantasy movie especially it's it's a really fun kind of twist and most of the movie the mystics are just sort of slowly moving across the countryside because they know they need to get to the tower at the end for the big moment which you know, because of the prophecy, et cetera, that they need to be kind of reunited with their other halves. That fi- that ending as well, where they do recombine, 
what the very first time that I saw that it absolutely blew my mind again remember I was 10 years old it just I mean I'm sure Kelly probably had the same reaction being eight years old it absolutely, absolutely. just blew me away that the you know because as a kid you're not thinking ahead in the same way as you do when you're an adult and so the final you know when we saw them all disappearing at the same time and I was like wait wait they're connected what's going on and then mm-hmm. the final revelation that actually they are the same being just absolutely blew my tiny little mind um and a lot of this comes from apparently i found out later Mm -hmm. from something called the seth material um which uh jim henson apparently had sort of been reading a lot of and it's i'd never even heard of this before i found out about it in connection with the dark crystal some years ago but it's basically laid the foundation for what is now considered new age philosophy and but at the time was still fairly obscure, I think. And that's why the movie has this very new age kind of feel to it. And Augur's lines about, you know, uh, good, bad, all the same. Sometimes things are the same. Sometimes they're different, whatever. You know, that very kind of, hey man, we're all connected and sometimes things work out. And sometimes it's all about don't, crystals, man. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It's all about yeah, right. crystals, man. Yeah. It's all He's about... dead. Could be anywhere, man. It's yeah. all about radical that's love, it, yes. brother. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, show, like, show me another, another whether fantasy, fable, science fiction thing of this time period that plays with the philosophy and morality this way, where it's not about good vanquishing evil. It's about common cause and and coming healing. together and healing. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. about good and evil realizing that they are two sides of the same coin, as Jason said. It's, uh, it is unique in that sense, but it is also a great fun movie to watch as well i learned all about this from the enemy within episode of the original star trek by the way but <laughs> oh, and by the way we talked about the, I, I learned what a conjunction was from this movie oh. i never heard hmm. the word conjunction before i watched this movie and uh yeah <laughs> came out of it going what's that i had a moment that i i wanted to mention in this movie that is adorable in the in its utter jim Hensonness, and <laughs> it could be i don't even know how to say it the scene is that that um a is it a creature uh wa- is like standing in a cave and the cave mm-hmm. is a mouth and it closes yeah. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. yeah and all around the cave that is now a hill because it closed and it was a mouth there are these little like dark i don't know flowers or something and they all mm-hmm. kind of wiggle as if they're laughing because this just happened yeah and they're like wake up yep yep the yep, only yep, thing yep. missing is a burp sound at right. some point in there but otherwise <laughs> yeah. it's like and I, I i paused it and i turned to lauren and i was just like that is the most jim henson thing i have ever seen it just it's because it's whimsical and weird and you know that's that's uh, it's whimsical and weird that's jim well, henson and, and it's another that's, example of how you know showing you that this is not our world that this is mm-hmm, the whole mm-hmm. world it has completely different laws of nature it's all right from the off it feels like a very different world have any of you seen the so-called director's cut of this i haven't don't think it so. is a fascinating thing it's more like a work print really originally the skexis were going to talk in a made-up language Right. And Mm -hmm. there are conflicting reports about whether or not they were going to be subtitled. And there is a version out there, I won't tell you where to find it, but there is a version out there which has no voiceover and the Skeksis talk in a strange made-up language with no subtitles. And it transforms the movie because you have no idea what's going on. (laughs) You're just completely baffled. It's fascinating. Yeah, try and find it if you can. 
Yeah, and I like that's another thing I like about the details that they went into for this sort of thing. Um, because one of my favorite scenes ever is uh, when they get to the Podling Village after Jen has met Kira, um, because the Podlings are speaking in a made-up language that they took several bits of Eastern European languages mm-hmm. and mish- mishmashed it together. Um, but between that and the music at the celebration just made the podlings feel Mm. like this genuine fleshed out culture. Mm. Uh, And I've always adored that sequence. Um, Every single time I've watched the movie, I just like sit back and enjoy uh, watching Jen try to uh, assimilate into this group um, that is very welcoming to him. They're very happy to have him there, um, you know, until um, until the attack. But right. And then the Gotham show up and scare the pants out of everyone. (laughs) The the Hensoniness yeah. of 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 those two bits the podling uh, the podling party uh, the when the hills have mouths and the third one for me that that made the, that really just sends home the Hensoniness of it is much smaller. It's when Fizzgig opens up his mouth. Oh, and you notice <laughs> and, he's and a you notice the second. Well, you notice the second row of teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Will Will was quick to point <laughs> that out when he inside saw it. His mouth. <laughs> Between that yeah. and asking, how does he move? Does he actually roll? Or does he have legs? You know. And finally, we <laughs> yeah. get a shot of him bouncing down a corridor, and Will's like, "Okay, he rolls." It's, that's uh, the. It's your adorable sidekick animal, and lots mm-hmm. of kids' movies have him. And uh, he he gets he gets kicked into a pit of lava at one point, and you're like, "Oh no, they killed the adorable kids." No, he's he's fine. He's yeah, fine. No. <laughs> yes, no, but that was Will. Was like, no. And then I'm just you know a little yeah. bit later, Augur gets him out and was like, "Okay, good." By the way, I have a visceral dislike of crabs, oh. and I am convinced oh. that it is entirely down to the Gotham in this movie because even now as an adult, they freak me out. They're There's creepy. Something no, they about were, the way they, they were inspired by lobsters. They apparently, stick those claws yeah. inside when he tries to escape into the lava pit, and there's like a claw going after him. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I think, I think maybe this movie is why I have a visceral hatred of Pomeranians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing that was that that I noticed um, not in this, but uh, when I got to see Fraggle Rock for the first time was. Oh hey, podlings! Like I got a very, yeah. I I feel like kind of you know as you watch like you see sort of variations on the theme a little bit, and I did enjoy sort of that. Hey, they they kind of you know live in the ground and seem a little worker bee kind of, and you know, but there's a lot of music happening. And well, at, at the same time, Kelly, they they dance their cares away, worries for another day. That's that's just kind of the way they operate. <laughs> <laughs> so some of that to me is sort of funny, and I remember. Um, I remember watching The Dirt Crystal a lot and my brother had not and he's three years younger than I am. And so he watched, Fra- he got to see Fraggle Rock first. And then one time when I rented The Dirt Crystal, he was watching it with me and he went, those guys are from Fraggle Rock. I'm like, no, because <laughs> he just came at it the other way, but he saw the same thing, yeah. which I thought was was kind of funny. But um, like that was that's one of the things that that I noticed about that. Like I always thought they were interesting, and I was always a little disappointed that we never got to see more of the 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 podlings and their place in this particular world. And I know that their place in this story wasn't very big, but I always kind of wanted to know more about them. And I feel like Fraggle Rock kind of gave me that. Well, also, you're also going to love the uh, Netflix series then, because there's a lot of podling action in there. Mm. <laughs> Yay! Um, talking about the again, an aspect of the storytelling, I've always liked the that Ogre is 
not scared of the Gotham. Like they completely destroy right. her home. They come battering. She's not scared of them at all. She's just, she's angry just annoyed that they're she's wrecking just, her home. Yeah. I adore Agra. I adore Agra. She's I just, the you know, best. Yeah, I just, I remember at the time just thinking like, you know, she's just, you know, she's just this mad older lady. She's the crone, and she's too old to care anymore. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, between that and like the Mad Eye Moody Eye, that you know before oh, yeah. before there was a Harry Potter franchise. That was that moment where Lauren was like, "Oh yeah, I remember that." Like again, images from when she was a kid. Uh-huh. They're removing an eye yeah. and and uh, and looking at at it. It's looking around and all of that. I think Agra is an interesting character because this could be a thankless part. I mean, it's a puppet, so it's nobody's part. But like. In the story, right? This could just be the exposition yeah. character and be really... And instead, she's quirky and weird and kind of refuses to deal with a lot of the crap that's going on in the movie. And she's like, but whatever. And like, I, I think I think that makes her much more interesting that she's so weird mm-hmm. and quirky and not just what the plot requires of her. Honestly, mm-hmm. when Kira showed up, the movie opened up for me. Uh, and and I, I like the, the, the presence of feminine energy in this mm-hmm. movie is so heroic and counter to everything else that I had experienced in fantasy fiction at that point where there there was a lot of damseling and you know Agra you know DGAFing and and uh and Kira just honestly you know it, it was it was almost the inverse of uh, of of the main kid from Black Cauldron and Ilanwi where uh where where you know the the what in other stories would be the the princess character shows up and is actually the hero of the story and Jen Jen has always been kind of a come on, dude, come on, man. You know, <laughs> embrace the hero's Luke. journey, man. He's Luke like, Skywalker, <laughs> like you know, yeah, right? He's like, the whiny farm boy. At the yeah. time, I adored him. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I adored the, that style of character. I still adore him, but yeah, now it's like, okay, n- dude, y- you on, need guy. somebody to help you. You, <laughs> yeah. you need this, and and I loved that their dynamic was absolutely. You know, two character, two characters attacking this problem from different sides, finding things that work together, um, finding ways to help one another uh, without um, without one uh, dominating. The thing that that really stood out to me watching it uh, over the weekend was uh, the part when he says when when Jen says to her, like, you don't have to go. And she says, I know. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, yeah, I know. And then, and there's no other dialogue, and she goes along with them anyway. And that moment, well, and really, also he doesn't argue. He doesn't yeah, try together. to. Okay. Yeah, he doesn't try to dissuade her and say, "No, no, no, it's far too dangerous for a girl" or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And I that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed that moment more recently than like I've you know I've I've noticed before like yeah she just goes and he doesn't try and keep her from going. And, yeah. But it really mm-hmm. stood out to me uh, watching it uh, yesterday and today. I've always appreciated that she saves herself as well right. yeah. at the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. Like, yes, you know, she needs Jen to snap her out of the trance, but he doesn't rescue her. She does rescue herself with her own skills as well. Not with magic, but with skills that we've already seen her use in the movie, you know, just like a regular yes, hero animal. would. So, animal yeah. calling. Yeah. And I always... 
I always take a look at the bit where they reveal the fact that she has wings. And it's like, on the one hand, is that a deus ex machina? And on the other hand, is it just a really clever bit of gender diversion within this race and enriching the, the story? That's a great laugh out loud kind of moment, yeah. though, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. also, it's one of the best lines in the movie, it in is. my opinion. And one of the most memorable. I don't have wings. Well, of course not. You're, You're a, boy. a boy. And she <laughs> says it with just the right disdainful tone. Right. Like, you know, kind of, well, yeah, obviously. Almost, almost not, not a, even disdain, just just like matter-of-factly. <laughs> point of information, duh. you're well, a boy. Duh. Yeah, Come yeah. on, man. Right, right. But that mean it's that kind of duh level yeah. of disdain. But, but, I mean, and, just and, and I think slightly. that specific thing is what early on, like I, I locked in on the, the first time I saw this thing, you know, front to back, it was, for me, the realization was, oh, the hero of the story showed up, her, her sidekick who was getting on my nerves, uh, finally, I've got something else to watch. And that, that's very much the lens through which I, I saw this movie and, and have seen this movie, uh, you know, all the way to this point is is that is that Jen is very much the same way as Gamgee and uh, and 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 she is the she is the Frodo. But another aspect of that, and again, I know I keep talking about the storytelling, but another aspect of the whole, you know, I don't have wings thing is that uh, it op- it poses all sorts of questions. Like immediately you go, wait, uh, wait, hang on a second, I have questions here. And they just completely they just move on. Yeah. You know, they don't talk about those questions. Yeah. They give you no answers to them. And they do the same thing when uh, Jen and Kira walk through the ruins of the old Gelfling you know, uh, abode, castle, whatever exactly it's supposed to be. Um, no answers there. You get the prophecy, but you don't mm-hmm. get any answers about what the society was like because they don't know. And again, it just it raises all these questions that you have as a viewer, but then mm-hmm. doesn't answer them and leaves it all to the viewer's imagination. And I really appreciate that. I mean, as a kid, I loved it. Now as an adult, I appreciate the fact that they don't answer it and they don't spoon feed. You know, because there are many aspects of this movie, which are spoon fed to an audience mm-hmm. because again, it's aimed at kids, but things like that, they're just like, no, let's, let's leave it there. Let the kids imagination run riot. I really like that. Can I ask you as somebody who hasn't seen the Netflix series yet? I want to, I just haven't had the time uh, without spoiling it. And I know that we're primarily talking about the movie. Yes. D- how do you feel about what the Netflix series has done in terms of fleshing other stuff out? Have they over explained things that you would have rather they left alone or, or does it, does it really, does it fit? No, I would say they haven't over-explained things. I mean, there's going to be a second season, so that might. But the first season certainly doesn't. It's my feelings, because I love this movie so much, my feelings about the show on Netflix are a bit complex. I did enjoy it, and I'm glad that if something like this was going to happen, that we got a show that is as high quality as it is. But I'm not actually 100% convinced it needed to exist. But it's Hollywood, so it was going to happen you know, and I'm glad that therefore we got something that is this good. So thank the Urskex that uh, that it came <laughs> out this good. Yeah. Oh, actually, on that point, here, here's an interesting thing for you. I almost wrote a comic spin-off of The Dark Crystal. What? <gasps> many years ago. Oh. Only Press were in the running to li- get the license for the comics. Uh, and at the time, myself and Chris Mitten had just launched Wasteland. And Chris is also a big fan of the Dark Crystal. And so, yeah, he, he did like several illustrations of Skeksis and Mystics and stuff uh, to pitch for it. And I started thinking about you know, pitches for stories. Uh, and then Archaea snatched the license away from Androni's nose. And unfortunately it, uh, it never happened. And we did get comics, but from Archaea and I wasn't involved in them, but yeah, for a, for a tiny moment, a tiny moment. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's funny. You mentioned that Anthony, I, I wanted to 
ask, like the Netflix series is a prequel. And that was something I was thinking. And since you had to think about this, I'm curious what your thoughts are about this. Is there anywhere for this story to go? I mean, probably there is. But like the way the story ends, the world is really transformed. And so how do you tell a Dark Crystal story that isn't a prequel without losing the Skeks? Otherwise, you lose the Skeksis and you lose the Mystics. So I'm not surprised, having watched this movie now, that it is a prequel because I can see why, you know, why would we do a follow-up to the Dark Crystal but not have 80% of the characters uh, in it because they disappear at the end of this? How, you know, without giving anything away because you never say never, you know, how how were you going to approach it? <laughs> were you going to go back in time or were you going to try and explore what Thra looks like after the uh, the crystal is intact again? Oh, no, it would have been a prequel. See? Yeah, we would have covered the same sort of ground that the Netflix series has, no question. Because it, this is one of those things where it's not quite, a, and they little lived happily ever after as an ending, but it is... It's a Rubicon. It's, it's a singularity. Yeah, it's not the ending that you do if you're planning to have 10 follow-ups to it, is I guess mm-hmm. what I'm saying. <laughs> It ends. Yeah. It has an ending and they do live happily ever after, more or less. And I don't know what you would, you know, and nobody really wants to see a story where where the story is, oh, hey, remember that thing you love that had a happy ending? Well, five years later, it was terrible again. And there was a new, like, people don't <laughs> want to hear that either. So I don't know. Yeah. They liked it in Star Wars. Yeah, they didn't like it in Alien 3. Sorry, <laughs> there's an justly maligned you can listen to about that where... Two very misguided people talking about <laughs> Alien 3. Anyway, hi, Moises. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, okay, so all of you were talking about uh, Kira and how much you like her. And I think this is interesting because I was going to ask about Kira because I kind of rolled my eyes at her because, and, and I, I, I love how you're all positively interpreting her and there's lots of good stuff in there. But at the same time, she's the hero's sidekick. Uh, she does need to be saved or revived at the end. Uh, she is put in peril in order for the hero to have to save the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I looked at her and I guess I was a, a more of a glass half full person where with some exceptions, I felt like she was a really standard girl side character, not the real hero kind of character. And that, I mean, it's 1982, but that did actually disappoint yeah, me. exactly. I don't know. I may be swayed a bit by um, when I think about some of the um, the puppetry, the acting that they did through the puppets, some of the highlights for me are um, the the puppetry that managed Kira. Um, just you know, seemed to have just the right shift, just the right twitch. Uh, the way she hunches down when um, she's um, imprisoned by the scientist and he's about to try and drain her, things like that. I think maybe that may be coloring slightly my attraction to the character. Um, but I, I still stand firm with the idea that she challenges Jen. She's not just his sidekick. There are times when she has the answer that he doesn't. Um, so, you know, for me, it works. I'll just take issue a second. She's not put in peril in order to motivate Jen. She like, puts they're herself already, in peril. He's already motivated and they're already going, you know, in mm-hmm. the castle to heal the crystal. But she gets captured. And like I say, and he doesn't have to rescue her. So... I'm okay with that part of it. But it, as you say, it was 1982. Yeah. I see what you're saying, about Jason, at the end when, you know, she goes, he he gets to the crystal, he drops the shard. She's the one who's able to go down and get it. And then she gets stabbed for it. And that's what, you know, that and that particular instant motivates him to thrust it back into the crystal and heal it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in, in that instant, um, there is a bit of that going on. True. But again, he was going to do that anyway. You yeah, know, it's it's yes. The fact that she dies 
to enable him to save the day, I agree, is problematic. But I think it's not, you know, there have certainly been worse. Uh, sure. And certainly around the time. When I say that the plot of this movie is in some ways, especially on this surface level, really a standard fantasy story <laughs> plot. This is one of my one of the reasons I feel it, yeah. that way is she is fulfilling a role and the details are are a little different and the performance is good but she's also you know this is her job is to do this part of the story and enable the hero to save the day and you know this isn't a story where the girl is the hero and the boy is the sidekick mm. it's the other kind that's the one that we've seen many more of and it's fine i think we're both wrong um, in equal measure. And it goes back to the new aginess of the script because, it, you know, the, the whole new agey reunification of the Skeksis and the, and the mystics. Um, we, we look at this story through the lens of our expectations and the stories that we've seen, and we're trying to conform it to the tropes that we are used to in various ways. And as much as I made the, like the Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, uh, analogy, it doesn't 100% fit. It, it isn't exactly one-to-one that kind of relationship, but there is that kind of, it is, it is both of them together. It is the Gelfling. It is them working in harmony, working in unison, um, and, and it's, it, it's something that I do not see as an unequal relationship. Um, that's, I, I mean, I, I think, I think that's part of what it is, is that they came at this from a different angle than we were used to. And, and our instincts are to make it conform to the things that we've seen before. I think you give them too much credit. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> How dare you? I give the Jim Henson you, company it, too much credit. Basically, you said, I think we're both wrong. And my response is, no, I think it's you. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> which one of us is the mystic and which is the skexy? I think it can be both, Moises. In all seriousness, yeah. the, the, the whole point that I'm making is this is both a bog standard fantasy story with all the tropes on top and then some incredible technology happening and filmmaking technique and then some very weird and and uh, new agey and strange things happening bubbling under the surface and that's why it's more than just a generic fantasy story because it's got all those other elements yeah. and that really elevates the material in a way that um it it didn't have to right like if all there was was the standard fantasy text this would be a snooze of a movie and even even with the technical accomplishment but it is more interesting than that so so what you're saying is that we're both right and i'm saying that we're both wrong yeah, so I win. together 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 huge explosion yeah. and the, the, there's only a crystal remains yeah only only a glowy space alien uh <laughs> remains yeah that is a weird ending i mean it, I, I don't know what you do about the ending of this movie but uh, cause you gotta kind of reunite the two halves of the soul and have this, but it's, uh, you know, they, they become these weird glowy things. And, um, I don't know, I don't know what I was expecting to get at the end, but it, 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 I wasn't expecting kind of a glowy optical effect. <laughs> Groot? <Wasn't this? laughs> yeah. Cause it was glowy Glow Groot. Groot. It was. Oh my God. It was light up articulate Groot. Hmm. Yeah. Light, light up articulate Groot. Groot. So here's another aspect of the kind of the, the, what you're talking about, that underlying new agey philosophy. When they, when they get together at the end, right at the end, when they reunite, you finally see, and it's the only time in the movie that you see it, how tall the mystics are. Because the mm -hmm. whole movie, they've been these bow-backed, short at the soldier creatures, right. you know, like slowly moving along and you think, oh, they're, you know, they're weak and they're blah, blah, blah. And the Skeksis are the big, tall, powerful, imposing ones. And then when they get together, you finally realize that, oh, no, 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 the mystics 
were bigger all along, but they didn't need to show it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's such a new age cliche now, <laughs> but it's, you know, again, for a kid's movie in 1982, that was kind of amazing. So I before thought. the crystal cracked, were they, were the, they all tall tree people living in harmony? Yes. Uh, and and but, that's the idea. Yeah. But at the yeah. end, yeah, they don't come, come back and say, well, now we're going to be back here because there are only eight of them or whatever. So then mm-hmm. they just decide that they're going to leave and, and let the planet be to, to whoever is left on the planet. I think it's a great ending because it is completely unexpected and yet totally inevitable, which is what any good movie ending should be. Mm-hmm. And it is also, as we said, it's a Rubicon, it's a singularity. It can only happen once. Again, any good movie ending should be like that. You know, after this, there is no more story right. because all the problems have been solved. And it's their fault. I, I guess that's the other implication here is that it, mm-hmm. they, they caused this whole thing to happen that decimated yep. this planet. So, sorry so, we ruined your planet. So they need Catch to go you later. Away. Bye. They Lol. need yeah. to go away. Yeah. <laughs> what else have we uh, not covered, those of you who have had this movie near and dear to your heart for so long? The only other technical thing I wanted to mention, I talked about how when I was a kid, I I couldn't quite figure out if I was seeing puppets or real people or what was going on. And as I was watching it again this time, there was one particular shot that really emphasises that. And it is, I mentioned it earlier, it's the shot when uh, when Augur's orrery gets attacked by the Gartham and Jen escapes through the window and he tumbles down the hill. And there's a shot where we track him tumbling down the hill. And it's obviously a person, probably a child, you know, mm-hmm. in a costume, full length, tumbling down a hill going, oh, ah, 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 and then lands and then gets and without a cut gets up in the camera and it's Jen the puppet. Now, obviously, as an adult, I know how they do That's that. It's a Texas the cowboy switch. fall. It's a, right, Texas, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's a you know. But as a kid, because the camera doesn't cut, my god, it fooled the hell out of me. And then they do it again in reverse. Because he gets up, looks, sees the orrery on fire on the hill, and then they cut back to the same shot. He turns around, runs as a puppet back into the undergrowth, and then the kid on the other side of the undergrowth runs out of frame. <laughs> and, it, and like I say, you know, it's all smoke and, smoke and mirrors movie magic. But again, as a kid, that just kind of, I was like, what? But these things aren't real. What is happening? And that's why Kieran Shaw gets a stunts line in the uh-huh. credits, right? And, and that, exactly. And this yes. is what I was saying before about, about grounding it. And it's the Farscape lesson of touching the puppet, which is those moments where they're interacting in a way that takes you out and, 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 you can't think of them as puppets anymore because they're doing something decidedly unpuppet-like, and you know, just like moving the the mystics moving on that ridge with the sky in the background. Yep. It's like it it is that is uh, those little little movie magic tricks are so powerful in having you kind of get jarred out of your assumptions about what you're watching. It's just yeah, it, it's it's great. I, I one of my overarching things that I wanted to say having not seen this uh, movie before is I do think it's a shame that we don't have um we don't have as many things that are quite as daring as this anymore. Um technology allows us to kind of create whatever we can imagine, which is great, but I do think it's remarkable the 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 risk uh, the desire to make a movie that's entirely populated by puppets, it doesn't happen that often. It does happen occasionally. There are occasional movies that are puppets or marionettes or something like that. It does happen. But just puppets in an original world, um, and it doesn't have to be puppets. It could be like some other way of doing it. It's just the idea of, of how strange and unlike 
other movies this movie is. That that's the thing that mm. that I I feel like um, I like about it the most, honestly, is that it is unafraid to be this completely different thing on so many different levels. And I would like to see more uh, attempts by people who have enough credibility to get a movie made like Jim Henson did. I agree. And and it's nothing to diminish the sorcery of CG, but there is there there is so much magic to be captured in camera that people don't even go for anymore. I mean, one of the things that, despite various other things one could say about Tom Cruise, is that he is very, very focused on on making sure that he is doing crazy, impossible, insanely dangerous stunts that are captured in camera. See, I thought you were going to say Tom Cruise was a puppet, and I might have believed you. <laughs> <laughs> doing something for real, doing it in camera, even if you are using CG sorcery in addition to it, um, it's, it's a matter of there, there, there isn't even that discipline anymore of people going, yeah, let's go for it. That kind of magic is something that people just aren't trying anymore. And by the way, that's one of the things that uh, I like a lot about the Netflix series is that it is puppets again, because right. mm. you have to figure it must have been so tempting for them to just like, say, oh, let's just do it all in CG. No problem. Let's make an entirely animated CG series. We know how to do that. No problem. Uh, but they didn't. They went to the trouble of, you know, going back to the puppets uh, and and did it really well as well. Lisa Henson said that apparently originally they were looking at, well, I guess we're going to have to do it as as animation, like just you know, straight up uh, uh, 2D, you know, cell shading animation. And then Netflix dumped a giant truck of money on them and they went, <laughs> we can well, do the puppets then. again? We can do puppets. And they, my understanding is, of course, uh, that the TV series has all sorts of computer graphic, uh, you know, effects. Oh, it has in enhancements, it. absolutely. But yes, they yes. are just, just like, just like, just like this one. movies have people in this them. One had Ex- optical, this <laughs> one had optical effects in it. <laughs> exactly. The, the C- and that's, the I, CG I was going to our friend Todd Vaziri, who works at ILM, like he he goes on and on, quite rightly so, about the idea that these are tools. And in the end, the people who make these movies are filmmakers and they have access to all sorts of different tools. But the point is that they're filmmakers. And I was thinking about um, Todd talking about that when I was watching this movie, because that's absolutely true. This is a movie that is an amazing piece of filmmaking and they're using very different tools to get the effect that they want. But it is still filmmaking. There are still optical effects in it when they need them. And, you know, computers let you do a lot. But in the end, and I love that the Netflix series is made with puppets and then they use the tools that are available to extend those to get the be to get the vision of what they want. But that it does start with with puppets. And I, I, I think that that's kind of a beautiful thing, that these tools are all there for you, but you don't need to always make the same thing and say, well, we, it must look like everything else that's ever been made. And Dark Crystal does not at all can we talk for a little bit about the design of the orrery as well sure about augra's mm-hmm. place because that is it's a stunning thing not just the the scope of it but um the the things it moves the way it moves imitating the heavens you've got all of these layers circling you've got the puppets interacting with it as jason said at the beginning you know part of the incredible scope of this is the puppet the puppeteers having to manage their characters 
uh, dealing with all of these moving parts. And my God, there are so many moving parts in that yeah. <laughs> in yeah. our Hogwarts Tower. Dangerous um, parts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's just, you know, that 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 entire mechanism is just beautiful. It crushed me this time to see it um, get attacked and start, you know, getting destroyed. Yeah, it it hurt a lot to see it as a very young kid, as a, as a kid. And to see this amazing place with this whole massive room in the middle with this entire model that moves around and is telling her all this information. And then to watch it burn down was really sad to me. And I remember, uh, you know, like that being one of the, the huge moments of like, this is a whole nother thing. Like we've never been here. I've never seen anything like this before. And on top of her being super interesting and Mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, and then to find out that like where she lives is just as interesting as she is. And, you know, watching all of this stuff. And I remember sort of having a hard time uh, a few during a few moments uh, watching the movie the first time because I wanted to look at everything and I just wanted to like stop for a second and get to see all the stuff that I wanted to see because back in that corner is something really cool and way up over there is something really cool <laughs> and I can't see all of it at once. And then, you know, the, the scene changes and I can't, you know, I don't get to go back and see that again. So I remember looking at, at her entire like where she lived and what that was like and i just remember my mind going off and like like what's her story and and how does she go through a day like what is she actually doing you know in this place with this massive you know bunch of pieces rotating all the time and does it ever smack her in the head and of course these are all things i want to know you know and then (laughs) to watch it burn down was just so very sad to me because she was so cool and she was so interesting and her the place that she lived was so interesting and we only got to see it for a minute and then it got destroyed and i remember being very very sad about that it is that's talking to jason talks about you know sort of making things real by having to construct these actual real sets that set must have been huge Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless it was you know, unless they were using small puppets, but they weren't, right? <laughs> like they, no, they because the Ogre puppet—that's yeah. another full size. That's somebody inside that thing, right? right. <laughs> yeah, it's not—it's not small. No, they had her—they had her yeah. at Mopop, and it's not a small puppet at all. So this is so. I, I talked about animation earlier. Like this is one of the things that I love about animation, and it, and it, it follows for this movie, which is not animated yet. Sort of is is you know. You don't have reality to lean on, but at the same time, it means that you get to interpret reality as a filmmaker and that we as viewers get to watch this world that has been created out of whole cloth by the filmmaker. And in fact, because there isn't an analog to anything in the real world, um, it gets to be as you know weird as you want it to be. And this movie is pretty weird. Um, but I, I think that's that's part of the beauty of it. The orrery is a great example. The the tower is also a great example. Like these are strange things that yeah, you can build a set for a movie, but um, you know you can also cheat and use things that already exist. And in this, you know, with a few exceptions where they shot on on real locations, it's you know everything you see is a decision by the filmmakers, and uh, that's as in animation, a beautiful thing. Yeah, certainly every internal, every interior set is 
completely designed, constructed, and as you say, alien. And you can't go to the secondhand store and get parts for it either, right? Because it it, it right. has to be <laughs> this of this very weird world. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, the whole thing is magical, as I say. That's why ever since I was a kid, the, this movie mesmerized me in a way that uh, almost no other movie has, and has stayed with me as. Christ, yeah, for nearly 40 years. Mm. Um, And as I say, and I regularly still watch it, and I still love it every time I do because there's something fundamental about this movie uh, and the magic within it that, I don't know, that speaks to me. All right, well, I'm going to wrap up this episode. This was a lot of fun to talk about this movie. I'm glad I finally saw it. I It was out there, and I don't know. I just never got around to it. So thank you all for, uh, again... Oh, I thought you meant it was out there as in, like, it was crazy. It, no, it was literally... It was a movie that existed, and I just didn't watch it at any point. Uh, I think because I didn't have cable as a kid, because uh, when, mm-hmm. I remember visiting my sister once, and she had the little book that came with her cable every month of like what was on the premium channels and yes shannon yes the dark crystal was on every few hours it seemed on yep. her hbo or whatever it was but i didn't have that so i never really got to it but i have my, my education continues here at the incomparable so uh thanks to all of you for that and i would like to thank my panelists before we say goodbye anthony johnston i hope we did uh right by the dark crystal absolutely yes and just always remember end begin all the same all the same <laughs> kelly gamont thank you thanks so much for having me this is a blast Moises Chuyan, thank you very much. Moldy mildew, mother of mouth, muck dangle and strangle and death. And Shannon <laughs> Sutter, thank you. Always a pleasure. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. Until next time, I'm Jen and you're not. <laughs> <laughs>